The common lectionary gives us a passage from Isaiah 50 as the Hebrew Scripture lesson. This actually turns up every Palm Sunday. Most of the Scripture passages we look at come around in a three-year cycle, once every three years, but this must be important. We hear it every year on Palm Sunday. It is sometimes referred to as one of the suffering servant songs in the prophet uh, uh, Isaiah. There are four hymns or songs to a person that is called the suffering servant. The most famous is in Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The servant is never named in these songs and never given a specific historic location. It could be that the prophet is speaking about himself, the brave truth teller who was persecuted by his insulted congregation. Or it's possible that the servant stands for the nation of Israel itself. But whatever the case, when uh, that first Holy Week happened around 30 AD, it was irresistible for Christians not to see Jesus as the suffering servant. He was bruised for our iniquities. So Isaiah chapter 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning, God wakens my ear. And I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked my beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. It is the Lord God who helps me. Who will condemn? Pray with me. God, in Jesus Christ, you were despised and rejected by others. Watch over people who are different, who cannot copy well-worn customs or put on popular styles of life. If they are left out because narrow people, people fear different ways, help us to welcome them into the wider love of Jesus, brother of us all. Amen. So I'm continuing my sermon series for Lent at Kenilworth Union this year called Gifts from the Dark Wood. Today the dark gift is being or loving a misfit. And I think that's a perfect fit, no pun intended, for Palm Sunday, right? I'd love to take credit for that, but in fact, Joe and Katie and I put this sermon series together about a year ago, so it's just an accident that we're looking at misfits and Palm Sunday. A happy accident, though, don't you think? Because, look, there he comes, the prototypical misfit entering the holy city astride his eccentric conveyance to the hip-hip hoorays of thousands of locals and tourists who are adoring but also maybe inebriated, celebrating the Passover holiday, confident that this carpenter from Nazareth will effect a second exodus from Roman bondage as Moses did so long before from Egyptian slavery in the first exodus. His processional is happy, spectacular, and proud, and victorious, but also effervescent, right? Bananas have a longer shelf life than Jesus' victory, literally. In four days, he will be in chains. In five days, he will be dead. It's amazing how quickly he fell from king of the Jews to the suffering servant, Isaiah predicts 500 years before. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked my beard. 
they spit, they insulted me. He is the prototypical misfit. And I love G.K. Chesterton's tribute to Jesus' unusual, unusual transportation. Mr. Chesterton sees the donkey not just as a picturesque narrative detail, but as a symbol. Here comes the misfit riding a misfit, right? No valiant steed with sleek flank and lustrous mane, but this beast with monstrous head and sickening cry, with ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody of all four-footed things. A misfit riding a misfit. His descent into disgrace is abrupt, but not surprising, right? Because we understand that all communities have to expel their misfits. Isn't that one of the best words in the language? Misfit? It says exactly what it means. This fit is a mistake. Misfits aren't the right shape to fit the one missing puzzle piece in the human family. So we throw them in the trash bag. To change the metaphor, a misfit is like a foreign body in the organism. It's like a grain of sand in your eye that makes you weep and cringe or a virus in the bloodstream that the white blood cells attack. The organism cannot host parasites or misfits. One of our local celebrities, John Hughes, Glenbrook North High School, class of 68, made a whole nice career making films about misfits, pretty in pink, 16 candles, planes, trains, and automobiles. Still, for all that, you can see how both being and loving a misfit can be a, a gift, right? Because you are not part of this thick Selmagundi of human chaos on earth. You're above it all. You are not part of this, so you can take a satellite view of the earthly human drama. They've already banished you to the moon, so you can see this spinning blue marble for exactly what it is. You have so thoroughly disappointed almost everybody except for your 12 closest friends that they have nothing to expect from you any longer. You have nothing to lose. So what the hell? Forge your own path. And so whenever we tell our stories about the human drama, there are these misfits who turn out to be gifts to the human community. This is as common a meme in our literature as the superpower of invisibility we talked about last week. Rudolph is banished from the reindeer games because of an unsightly physical quirk, but then ends up saving Christmas for billions of children and on the way rescues those refugees from the island of misfit toys. Do you remember that Atticus Finch is a misfit, not only in his small, racist southern town, but even in his own family. Do you remember how Scout talks about her father? Atticus was feeble. Atticus was old. He was almost 50. <laughs> he didn't do anything. He didn't work in a drugstore. He worked in an office. He didn't drive a dump truck. He wasn't the sheriff. He didn't do anything. He didn't hunt. He didn't fish. He didn't play poker. He sat in the living room and read. And besides, he wore glasses. That's what Scout thinks of her father. 
And then there is that moment in the courtroom balcony, perhaps the most iconic scene in all of American fiction and cinema. Miss Jean Louise, stand up. Your father's passing by. Belle in Beauty and the Beast. She is a misfit because she loves to read in her tiny microscopic provincial French town. She loves to read and she does not want to be Mrs. Gaston. And so the people say, now it's no wonder that her name means beauty. Her looks have got no parallel. But behind that fair facade, I'm afraid she's rather odd. Very different from the rest of us. She's nothing like the rest of us. Yes, different from the rest of us is Belle. And then, by loving another misfit, this misfit manages to accomplish redemption and resurrection. This is a gospel-shaped story, right? This is almost New Testament. A misfit accomplishing resurrection by loving another misfit. I found a new misfit, misfit hero this week. Have you seen the film Hacksaw Ridge? by Mel Gibson, so we know it's going to be violent, but it's by Mel Gibson, so we know it's going to be about sacrifice and vicarious atonement, about Desmond Doss, 23-year-old kid from Lynchburg, Virginia, who enlists in the army four months after Pearl Harbor, even though he is a Seventh-day Adventist, which means that he does not smoke, he does not drink, he does not eat meat, and he does not kill, ever, for any reason. And so a soldier who will not kill is by definition a misfit. A soldier who will not kill is almost an oxymoron. And the U.S. Army must vomit up this abomination. His drill sergeant is horrified when Des won't pick up a rifle. So Des goes to the company commander and pleads his case. I don't want to kill anybody. I want to save lives. I will be a medic in your infantry. That's all I want. Oh, one more thing. Can I have Saturdays off? And the commander looks at him in disbelief and says, Sure, Des, no problem. I'll just phone the Japanese and ask them not to attack us on Saturday. And then three years later, in the battle for Okinawa, this desperate battle for this desperately important South Pacific real estate. Desmond Doss, without a rifle, by himself, delivers 75 wounded soldiers off Hacksaw Ridge under withering fire. And so 75 men go home after the war and get married and make babies and die at a great age in their own beds. The first conscientious objector to win the Medal of, Armor, uh, Medal of Honor in the U.S. military. I heard the most wonderful idea a while back. There's this place in Snoqualmie, Washington. It's called Echo Glen. It's a juvenile detention facility. And this is a place where they match misfits with misfits. They match unwanted children with unwanted dogs. There are about 160 teenagers living at Echo Glen. Most of them have committed serious or violent crimes, including robbery and murder. Many of them have abused drugs. 70% of them are depressed or 
mentally ill. Some of the kids wear orange to indicate that they're a flight risk. And some of the kids are so unpredictable that wherever they go, they are accompanied by at least one staff member. And when this story happened, Marcy was 18 years old, and she'd been living at Echo Glen for about nine months. Marcy had never met her father. Her mother mother died of a drug overdose when Marcy was eight. And then, between the ages of eight and 18, get this, Marcy was shuffled back and forth between 50, 5-0 foster homes. No one wanted Marcy. And then Marcy meets Spiker, a one-year-old German short-haired pointer Labrador retriever mix who came to Echo Glen because he was just like Marcy. Nobody wanted Spiker. He'd come to Echo Glen from a kill shelter. But he got a reprieve. And Spiker will spend two months with Marcy, who will teach him how to be a responsible canine citizen and then give him up for adoption to a family who wants to rescue a dog but does not have the time or the skill to train a dog. No problem finding homes for these dogs. There's a waiting list. Marcy and Spiker understand each other. These dogs were in a lot of trouble, just like me, says Marcy, so I knew I could give one a second chance. So they're together for two months, and then the kids have to say goodbye to their dogs to give them over to an adoptive family, and that's hard. Some of the kids need grief counseling when they say goodbye to their dogs, but it's the most wonderful idea. And it's hard to tell who gets more out of this situation, the teenagers or the dogs. Misfits, loving misfits. That's almost New Testament too. Jesus' spectacular fall from grace was precipitous but not unexpected. (laughs) We should have known by his odd transportation, that dissonant braying, the clownish ears, that stupid expression. We should have known from his odd transportation that the holy city would have to expel him from the organism like the virus he is. It's not surprising. It happens all the time to these brave truth-tellers who want to free the slaves. Abraham Lincoln, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, expelled from the organism. But see, here's the thing. Once they've left us, our whole world is a terribly different place. A preacher friend of mine asks a rhetorical question on Palm Sunday. He said, why would Jesus ride straight into the teeth of the city he knows is going to destroy him? And then my friend answers his own question. It must be because God knows, as only God can know, because the rest of us would have fought violence with violence. God knew that the only way to set things right again in a world that crucifies its best and brightest was to go straight into all that snarled injustice and unmake it from the inside out. And that is why that old rugged cross is the one thing we cling to because the cross alone not only understands how this sick world works, but also opens up a path to something far, far better. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.